0: Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Betulahatipolu. I'm a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve and a center director for diabetes and metabolic care at the University Hospital. Today, I have the pleasure to host one of my long, long loved colleagues, Dr. Sangira Kashyap. She serves as assistant chief of clinical affairs at Whale Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, where she directs clinical activities in endocrinology and oversees. And mentors junior faculty in clinical research programs. Her research focus is on type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and obesity interventions with surgical and non surgical modalities. She has participated in several NIH sponsored clinical trials for diabetes and enjoys teaching evidence based medicine. She serves as associate editor for the Journal of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism and Endocrinology Board Review Faculty for the Obesity and Lipid Sections for Endocrine Society. She previously worked as Professor of Medicine at Cleveland Clinic Learning College of Medicine and Associate Program Director for the Endocrinology Fellowship Program. Thank you for joining us, Sangita, today. Oh, thank
1: you so much, Beto, for having me. This is really exciting
0: to talk about NASH. Yes, thank you. I know you co-authored and served in the committee for American Association of Clinical Endocrinology Clinical Practice Guideline for the diagnosis and management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I know as a clinician myself, I have been confused with some of the nomenclature. You know, NASH, NAFLD, NAFLD, oh my God, fatty liver, I'm totally lost. Could you a little bit clarify for our audience? what all each of them are used for? Sure. So NAFLD is really a broad term, right? It could be
1: uh, liver steatosis, which up to 50% of people with diabetes or 25% of the whole world has liver fat. So it's pretty nonspecific. But then the the, the clinical entity of NASH really is liver fibrosis. That's clinically significant. And that's really determined by a liver biopsy and it's underdiagnosed. So often patients will have NASH or clinically significant liver fibrosis, but it's not evident till they develop the end stage liver disease, which is cirrhosis, ascites, even hepatocellular carcinoma. And we find out about it at the time of liver transplantation and when you're on rounds uh, you know the, what is often said is this person's going through a liver transplant because they have cirrhosis of unclear etiology well to me that's usually nash and it's metabolic related that was never picked up in a timely fashion
0: thank you and i think in our fields, and more and more as the, you know, diabetes, for example, hits 40 million individuals in the United States, we need to understand the risk factors. Who would say maybe clinically would would be at high risk for this so that we as clinicians are on the look for it? Right. So according to the guidelines, anyone who is overweight
1: is really at risk. But if we get, now that's two out of three people in the United States, but if we if we distill it down, it's people with metabolic syndrome. So we're more concerned about the phenotype. It's more of the visceral adiposity that seems to be more important. And of course, that's the phenotype our patients with type 2 diabetes have. So having type 2 diabetes, you are a high-risk group. It's unfortunate. And again, other risk factors such as smoking, aging, All of these sedentary lifestyle, eating a high fructose and high saturated fat diet, all of these things are risk factors. But I would say type 2 diabetes is a high risk group up to if you systematically study people with type 2 diabetes, one out of six in outpatient clinics have liver fibrosis. So that's 15%. And we're missing these folks because we're not looking for it in outpatient clinics.
0: Wow, that is, oh my God. I mean, (laughs) as a number and as we see more and more, oh my God, I am panicking how many of them I might be missing. Because I think until perhaps recently, there wasn't any emphasis or education about how we can catch these people, right? How can we diagnose them? What can we do from maybe calculating a score to a biopsy? There's all variety of things as clinicians we can offer, but we weren't maybe taught that intensely or we just didn't know. Can you enlighten us? Can you let us know what would you suggest all our listeners? How can they actually catch on time?
1: So when people with type 2 diabetes come to your clinic for routine clinical care, it's important not only to manage cardiovascular risk, but really look at liver risk, right? Because this is a significant source of mortality. And liver fibrosis also increases cardiovascular events, right? So thankfully, the field has really come a long ways. Now we have non-invasive liver scores. A lot of The FIB4 score is what we recommended in our guidelines. It's been validated across different populations. You need to do a CBC. You need to have transaminase. You need to know their age. But a simple calculation like a FIB4 score, and if it's greater than 1.3, they're at risk. Bottom line, they're at risk. And then what do you do afterwards? Well, you'd want to do some type of imaging and something called a fibroscan VCTE, which kind of measures how elastic the tissue is. And if the tissue is stiff, that means there might be some fibrosis. So this is something that in some clinics, even a medical assistant can do a VCTE or a fiber scan, and those results come back to the clinician. And then once you obtain a score that's over eight, then you should send them to hepatology because You know, we're assuming it's NASH or metabolic related, but the hepatologist will do their due diligence and make sure it's not related to drugs or viral hepatitis or other reasons, alcohol that could also look similar. So that's when you need to refer them to a hepatologist. And if you do it in a timely manner, you will detect patients earlier And what's great is that you as an endocrinologist will know, and you know that the treatment for NASH and NAFLD is weight loss. And so we've been working in this area for 20 years now. We've got great drugs. We've got terzepatide and semaglutide. So we need to use these drugs, you know, in a targeted way. So we let the patient know you're at risk for liver fibrosis. We're going to help you with weight loss. We're going to start you on these agents. We're going to be very robust in terms of monitoring their cardiovascular health, which is also at stake. And so I think the more you educate the patient, they feel more confident that, you know, you're doing
0: everything you can to protect them from diabetes. This is wonderful. And I know that you just brought it smoothly to this topic. So what do we do to help them? How can we indeed reverse, perhaps, if there is a chance to, once this uh, fat accumulation starts damaging the liver? Can you let us know a little bit about the exercise as well as a better diet between all those diets that everyone talks about? Can you let us know your thoughts and
1: opinion on Yeah. This? So I think the most important thing is we want to target weight loss. And diet, I mean, is an important way to induce weight loss. So anything where you have hypocaloric diet, that's going to work. But typically, one thing that has come up in the literature over and over again is the Mediterranean diet. So healthier fats, more fruits and vegetables, though, those are very important. And in fact, the type of diet that's really bad for liver is high saturated fat, and fructose. Fructose is found in all of the processed foods. And that's why you want to kind of steer your patients and educate them not to be eating those type of foods. But caffeine is actually good for the liver. So Ye I always hoo, tell my yes, yes, if they <laughs> love their caffeine and coffee, drink more because that's good for your liver exercise has been the gold standard for treatment of insulin resistance, right? And we use it all the time. And we educate patients 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise to prevent diabetes. Well, guess what, it's good for your liver as well. And then in terms of other diets, you know, I think there isn't a lot known about vegan diets or ketogenic diets, But I try to stir them away from a high fat diet. And some ketogenic diets are very high in fat. So we want to be careful. But I would say Mediterranean diet, there is some data also on the DASH diet, which is also very good for patients with hypertension. But there's some data to indicate that it might be healthy for the liver too. So I think those are the two diets that I would suggest to implement in your clinic.
0: Thank you. What about supplements? Any supplements?
1: Well, caffeine is is a good supplement. Anecdotally, and since they are supplements, we don't have a lot of data, but vitamin D was not shown to have an impact, at least when we looked at liver scores in a multi-center vitamin D trial. So we don't see any clear-cut benefit of vitamin D, but vitamin E is useful for treatment. in the pivotal trial showed that vitamin E 800 I use daily was helpful. And so I would say in non-diabetic patients, vitamin E is useful. In diabetic patients, it doesn't seem to be as useful. And in diabetes, we, we include other medications. So the big drugs that have been shown to be helpful are TZDs, Pioglitazone has had data to show that it's antifibrotic. SGLT2 inhibitors, dapagliflozin has been shown to also be antifibrotic and protects the heart as well. And then the GLP agonist, exenatide has had data that shows that it's good. Semaglutide has been shown also. And now there's new data with terzepatide, which is very potent in terms of weight loss
0: This is very exciting. I think that practicing, as you know, in the last two decades, we are seeing so many new hope in the horizon by developments of these new drugs, new groups. And it's really exciting times for just maybe on right timing, right? When we have a flooding of pandemic of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, and the liver disease. Do you see any ethnicity differences? I think we need to learn definitely
1: more it tends to affect women more and maybe it's because women especially postmenopausal women tend to develop greater levels of obesity especially visceral obesity so I would say women and definitely the hispanic population and you know any ethnicity where you tend to store more visceral fat so south Asians and hispanics they, those are like the ethnic groups where we worry about. So I would say the ethnic groups that are more predisposed to diabetes are also the same ethnic groups that are more predisposed to, to metabolic liver disease or NASH.
0: Thank you. And surgery, you know, bariatric surgery has been one of your passion in the last uh, almost two decades, I would say. Yeah. And uh, when would you suggest we think about bariatric surgery to help our patients with NASH or NAFLD?
1: So surgery, I mean, is so powerful in terms of weight loss and visceral fat loss. So the sleeve gastrectomy, you can see 25% weight loss. And you're also targeting visceral fat, which is the biggest a factor causing NASH. So Dr. Aminian, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, published a very powerful study in JAMA, and he looked at almost several hundred patients who went through bariatric surgery versus matched diabetic patients uh, who did not go through surgery. And he showed that those who went through bariatric surgery, the incidence of liver disease was about 2.3%, but in the control group, the incidence of liver disease was almost Uh, a 9.6%. And then he looked at also MACE outcomes in that same population. And he showed that MACE was reduced by 50% in the people who had uh, bariatric surgery versus the control group who did not. So we know bariatric surgery is very powerful, but it's got to be done very safely because even in that study, there were two deaths from gastrointestinal leaks, there were actually four deaths. So the mortality rate was 0.6%. But now a lot of endocrinologists would say, well, why would we subject our patients to that when now we have very powerful drugs like semaglutide and tirzepatide?" So I think this is where the field is. And I think everyone's opinion is very valid because it's up to the patient what they would like. I think if you as an endocrinologist have to assess their risk based on their obesity and comorbidities and say, I really think this would be a better way for you to go, or let's do medications for at least a certain amount of time, and then consider surgery as an option. But surgery we know is very effective.
0: Thank you. And wouldn't you agree that when someone has diabetes diagnosis, we have less difficulty to access these drugs that are very potent and helpful to our patients. However, the group that doesn't have a diagnosis of diabetes and they still go ahead and suffer the cardiometabolic risk. Maybe that group where we don't have an indication yet of trisepetide, for example, for weight loss management as of today, maybe a bariatric surgery should be top on the list to help these patients.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point because it's hard to give these patients, uh, well, uh, well, Wagobi or semaglutide is approved, right? But how many patients can afford that? And then- to sustain that level of treatment is very hard, right? You have to have good insurance. You've got to have a motivated patient who's gonna take the weekly injection and stick with the program and show up for follow-up visits. And in some cases, surgery might be a better idea because once you do the intervention, the durability of the weight loss is there for many years. So as long as you provide some support to the patient, I think the weight loss, which is the biggest thing that we're targeting for these patients, is there.
0: Thank you. And I wonder if you have a favorite exercise that you recommend to your patients. Well, I like
1: the ADA always says moderate intensity, but I think whatever you can do to get your heart rate up, so high intensity interval training, I think that is very effective for our patients. I think if they like to jog, if they like to do cardio dance, do something that they like, you know, it's so hard to motivate patients to exercise. So I feel like find out what they like to do and then try to kind of encourage that whether they like to dance or find out what they used to a lot of patients you know are very active younger in their life and then as they get older it falls away and so you try to ask them well what did you like doing when you were growing up did you play something in school or in college and do you think you could do that again and i would say whatever they can do because people who exercise tend to eat better right they're not going to play two hours of tennis, and then go eat a donut. I'll tell you that will not happen. (laughs) So I think whatever we can do to help them find what they like to do what they're able to do, just to encourage them.
0: I know you love tennis, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, and I love Zumba, I love cardio dance. And so you have to switch it up. But I think you have to motivate your patients to keep pushing themselves physically
0: and see what they like to do. Wonderful. And I think we are coming to the end of our podcast. Any pearls, wisdom that you want to uh, tell our listeners before we end our podcast today?
1: I just think liver disease is such an important comorbidity for diabetes. And the, the earlier we know, the better it is for the patient. We need to, as clinicians, have a systematic Approach, a systematic approach, just like we assess cardiovascular risk, we check microalbuminuria, we need to check Fib4. So please, it's, put it as part of your diabetes template, start calculating it routinely. You'd be surprised how many people have a Fib4 over 1.3. So please start doing it and get more comfortable in your
0: practice. Thank you so much. It has been a true pleasure having you today in our podcast. And if anyone needs to reach us, they can do it through our ACE website under the cardiometabolic disease. Thank you for joining. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.